Open your Bibles with me, if you would, to the book of Acts, chapter 2. Now, I'm going to do a bit, it's been a month (laughs) since we've been in the book of Acts, so I'm going to do a a quick recap and review uh, so that we've kind of, it's it's important just to bring us up to speed as to where we're at and um, uh, to be able to go forward from there. So, yeah, they got the door there. Uh, In our first, in the first one and a half chapters of the book of Acts, we saw that Jesus had gathered with his men there in chapter one in Jerusalem. And, and then they, he said he took them out to Bethany uh, over on the, just on the backside of the Mount of Olives. And there he had been lifted up. But before he was lifted up, he gave instructions to his men and he had been very specific. He said, go back to the city and wait for the promise of the father. That's what he said. So there they had been in the upper room, gathered with about 120 other believers, many from distant parts of the empire. And uh, we see that they were in one accord. That's, uh, again, that's the wording that's used. And what it means is they were of the same mind. They were waiting expectantly. They were doing what Jesus had told them to do. And if you remember, it was the day of Pentecost, one of seven national feasts of the Jews, uh, and in, in that study, we took some time. We looked at the prophetic significance. We actually took a good deal of one of the studies that looked at the different feasts and how they come to bear and, and the things that were fulfilled in those feasts in the fact that Jesus showed up when he did. Uh, fascinating study there. And we looked at the prophetic significance of, uh, of, of the day of Pentecost, uh, how it was that the very same day, centuries before, God had descended on Mount Sinai with the law, with the law of Moses. And now here on Mount Zion, the gift of the Spirit had come. Uh, And to the utter amazement of the people, they had seen, well, first they heard a sound as, as of, it says, as of a mighty rushing wind. And then they had seen tongues as of fire that rested upon each one's head. These supernatural miraculous manifestations of the Spirit as the Spirit was poured out. However, the most significant event of that morning was not just in what they heard or what they had seen, but the most significant event was the fact that they had been filled with the Holy Spirit. The temple of God would no longer be a building in Jerusalem. From here forward, God, by His Spirit, would indwell the human heart. Uh, transformation which would come about uh, in the life of a person who simply believes, trusts in the work, the person in the work of Christ. We'll talk about that a lot this morning. Uh, Both then and now uh, would be no less than radical. It's a radical transformation of a person's life when this takes place. So in our last study, we saw that when the sound occurred and the tongues of fire appeared, but the people were confused. Initially, they were, they were scratching their heads. Like, what is going on here? We don't, we've never experienced anything like this before. And then as the apostles spoke, those around them realized that they were speaking in their own native languages. Now, verse 7 tells us the people were amazed and they marveled. And they said to one another, look, are not all those who speak Galileans? Uh, Galileans in that culture were looked down upon. Uh, because in Jerusalem, that was the white-collar center. Galilee was sort of the blue-collar center. That's where the farmers and fishermen were. And, and they were kind of thought of as, as hicks from the north. 
in that sense. You know, what could they know? They're not educated. They're, they have a, a strange dialect and all of that. Now, in verse 12, we're told that the people were not just amazed, <laughs> they're marveling, soon turned to perplexity. They were wondering, what could all of this mean? Yeah, at first they marveled. They were like, this is amazing, miraculous. Nothing's ever happened like this before uh, with what they saw, with what they heard, with what they were experiencing. And then they began to become perplexed about it, trying to figure out where this was going. (laughs) Always uh, there are detractors in every crowd. And there were those that uh, were accusing them of being full of new wine, (laughs) thinking that they'd been hitting the bottle at that early hour of the day. Uh, (laughs) That's when Peter stands up raises his voice, he begins to speak boldly to the crowd. He says he stands up with the others. He began by reassuring them that these were indeed not drunk. He said, it's only 9 a.m. It's only the third hour. The Jews broke every day into 12 equal parts, sun up to sun down. And so he's saying, look, it's nine o'clock in the morning. These guys have not been, they've not imbibing here. Uh, I think about this too. The other thing that strikes me, folks, is remember, this is Peter. This is Peter. This is the same guy who, in the midst of arguing with the people at the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, as he was denying the Lord, had locked eyes with Jesus. In that horrific moment, he'd known that even with his best intentions, because he had good intentions, in his own strength, he failed. He folded. And then he heard the cock crow. Peter had been broken. We'll look at him in more depth in a future study as we go back out to the Sea of Galilee when he decided to leave the work and go fishing. And it was not recreation. It was a career choice. At any rate, he's on this side of all of that. And in verses 17 through 21 of chapter 2, Peter had gone on to quote the prophet Joel. He was reminding the people that God had promised to pour out his spirit in the last days. Here's what it says. And I'm going to go through this. We went through it in our last study, but I want to go through it again because it comes to bear with the text we're in this morning. He says, this is Joel's prophecy that he quotes in Acts 2.17. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. I guess I'm supposed to be dreaming dreams. (laughs) And on my manservants and on my maidservants, I'll pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. I'll show wonders in the heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. And the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So in the midst of Peter's reciting Joel's prophecy, he would have, uh, I mentioned this before, he'd have no reason to not believe that all of this could be fulfilled in his day. Uh, it's in the same way that we look at the latter aspect of this prophecy because part of it was fulfilled then, part of it was fulfilled later when Jesus came. And that's what Peter's point is. Uh, and, and we look at these things, we look at the prophecies that are yet unfulfilled, and we have no reason to believe that they won't be fulfilled in our day. As a matter of fact, evidence is mounting that they indeed will. The point in all of that is God doesn't obligate himself to tell us ahead of time. 
I've told people many times, folks, it's not in the contract. Sorry. He doesn't, he doesn't say, you know, I am obligated to tell you what I'm going to do before I do it. No, he does tell us what he's going to do before he does it. That's what we call prophecy. But it's on his timeline and in his time and in his ways. That's why it's important for us to pay attention. Now, another thing I want to touch on here, and because I want to expand on it, is last time I mentioned this quote from Joel is an example of what's called the law of double reference. And yeah, that's a theological thing. You don't have to remember that. But I do want to take this a step further so that you understand something about prophecy itself. Now, the law of double reference comes into play when a Bible prophecy has a partial fulfillment at one time and a separate or complete fulfillment at a later time. That's simply what it is. Now, when Joel prophesied, the near fulfillment was God's judgment that was coming upon Israel in his day. All right? In the midst of that judgment, God was promising a future blessing that he would pour out his spirit in the last days. Now, 500 years later, as Peter reiterates Joel's prophecy, the immediate fulfillment was God pouring out his spirit. All right? It was the future fulfillment when Joel gave it, and now it's the immediate fulfillment And Peter is correctly believing that it was the last days then when he is quoting this. However, the law of double reference comes into play here as well. While the Holy Spirit was poured out on Pentecost, which was a fulfillment of what, that's why Peter is quoting this, the future wrath spoken of in Joel's prophecy is yet to be fulfilled. So, Do you see how this works? I know that it might be a little confusing, but I marvel at how perfectly this prophecy comes to bear in Joel's day, in Peter's day, in the first century, and in our day. Uh, I've previously spoken about prophecy as as like thinking about, you know, driving a stick. That when you're going to go shift gears, you push in the clutch, you disengage, and then you do the shifting, or the shifting, and then you re-engage, you let the clutch out. This is sort of a double clutch thing here. He pushes in the clutch in Joel's day, lets it out in Peter's day in the first century, pushes it in again, and it will come back out at some as yet unknown date. I love this about prophecy. It's just amazing to me how accurately God predicts these things. And then when they come about, guess who gets the glory? So now, having gained the, the attention of the crowd, as Peter is talking here, we're going to go back into, he's in front of this crowd of people. At some point, it transitioned from being 120 to thousands. Uh, I mentioned that last week. It doesn't say how or where. Uh, we can suppose that it was in the temple courts. The court of the Gentile was huge, and it would have easily held that many people. There's not a lot of places in Jerusalem. It's a very hilly place where they would have congregated in those numbers. And we know that it's a feast. We know the temple opened at nine. <laughs> that was the time of the morning sacrifice. And so it's plausible that that's where they were. So at any rate, Peter is continuing on here. He, he, he says, men of Israel, in verse 22, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to, by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. So I just have to pause here. I mean, it's obvious that the Holy Spirit is all over this guy. This is not the same Peter that we see cowering at the enemy's fire. This is not the same Peter 
that, you know, he, it's like open mouth and then engage brain. This is not the same. This is a guy that is speaking boldly and powerfully and, and, and very directly to these people. And he's got these people's attention. You have to know that they are listening up. He commands them. He says, uh, essentially, to listen. What he has to say, listen up. Have you ever lived in a small town? <laughs> Stacy and I lived in a town of about 350. Actually, we lived outside a town where there was less population. And one of the earmarks of a small, closed community is the tendency to be dismissive towards outsiders. <laughs> I mean, that's the tendency in a lot of communities. It's sort of an inter- inner group. And if you're not part of the inner group, then you probably are just really not going to be very popular. <laughs> and so... We're told earlier in this, prof- in this chapter that, as I mentioned, these guys are Galileans. The people's attitude towards them had been that of being dismissive. Oh, they're just from Galilee. Pfft. Yeah, whatever. They're not from around here. Now, that's why Nathaniel told Philip in John chapter 1, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Very biased. So it's remarkable here, as we look at this verse, <laughs> verse 22 Jesus introduces, or Peter introduces Jesus as Jesus from Nazareth. He identifies him as a Galilean as well. Now, as I said, Galileans were known as being commoners. But Peter immediately, he he knew that the people associated them as being commoners. Peter immediately makes a distinction that Jesus was anything but common. He says he'd been attested by God to them by miracles wonders, and signs. And he reminds them that they had seen these things with their own eyes. He says, he did these things in your midst. You saw this. You have no explanation for this other than what I'm going to give you. Something else we see here is that God's purposes, what his purposes were in the signs and wonders. He says here, he says, they were designed to attest that they were designed to shed light, not on the signs and wonders themselves, but on the fact that Jesus, the one doing the signs and wonders, was who he claimed to be. They were there to validate the messenger and the message. So whether at the hand of Jesus, as Peter is sitting here, or at the hand of the apostles, who we'll see further in this chapter, and continuing as we study the book of Acts here, miracles and wonders and signs were never to be an end unto themselves. Nicodemus had it right. In John chapter 3, verse 2, reading about Nicodemus, it says, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus acknowledges God's purpose in the signs as validating the messenger. He says, we know that you're from God. We know because you're doing these signs and, and that has validated you as coming from God. Now, while it's true, that <laughs> that only goes part way because it's not just about the messenger. The miracles and the wonders and the signs were also to attest to, to validate the message. Jesus' response to Nicodemus, he, Nicodemus says, look, Jesus, because you're doing these things, I understand that you're the messenger. You're the one that's come from God. And Jesus immediately tells him what the message is. He says, in the very next verse, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, Nick, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's the message. 
So having validated the messenger in verse 22, Peter validates the message in the verses that follow. He's going to speak about the life of Jesus. Then he's going to talk about his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and finally his being glorified at the right hand of God the Father. He needs these people to understand. They they must understand that the one that they had murdered is in heaven. Thus, they must do business with him. He did not stay dead. And Peter launches into that here. Verse 23, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. You killed him. Peter, I'll tell you what, this is bold. Now, as a side note, in verse 23, we see a wonderful example of how two views, predestiny and free will, people like to argue about these, which on the surface seem to be in opposition to one another. Yet as we see here, they work together in perfect harmony. He says in verse 23, he speaks of the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. He's saying God knew ahead of time what he was going to do. And he had on purpose done it. However, and, and you could look at that and say, well, he predestined this. And yes, he did. But he doesn't let him off the hook. He also holds them accountable for their own choices. He says, in taking him by lawless deeds, you crucified him. You put him to death. So on one side, we see the the foreknowledge and the the predetermined will of God. And on the other hand, we see the, the free will of man choosing to do what they did with Messiah. And both of those work together. I've talked about, this is a perfect example why I share with you that both concepts are clear from God's word. Both are taught, both are true, and one falls apart without the other. If it were the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God only, man would ultimately not be responsible or accountable to God for his own choices. That's what logically follows. However, we know that we are accountable for our choices. Thus, both positions come to bear. So it begs the question, do you want to know if you're predestined? to be a child of God, if you don't belong to him, if you've never given your heart to Jesus, do you want to know if that's something that God has predestined you towards? The answer is simple. Choose to believe. Choose to believe. It's about trusting in the messenger and the message, the person and the work, who Jesus was and is, and that which he accomplished on our behalf when we were helpless to do anything ourselves to ensure our being able to go to heaven. Now, as he says in verse 23, he says, you've taken by lawless hands and crucified, put to death. In verse 24, he says, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Now, I want to make a point here before we deal with the context of this verse. The question then becomes, who exactly raised Jesus from the dead? In Galatians 1.1, the Apostle Paul tells us Jesus was raised by the Father. In John 2.19, Jesus predicted that he would raise himself from the dead. Destroy this temple and I'll raise it back up. Three days. In 1 Peter 3.18 and Romans 8.11, we're told that the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. So the answer to that question is that the Bible teaches that all three persons of the Trinity... The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are involved in Jesus' resurrection. We can assume 
that none of these uh, New Testament writers wrestled with the thought that God manifests as Father, Son, and Spirit. It wasn't an issue for them. Hopefully it's not an issue for us. That I don't understand it doesn't mean that it's not true. And we'll never understand this side of heaven, how God is one person or three persons, but one essence. He's essentially one God manifesting in three persons. Don't get it. Don't understand it. Circuit breakers start to pop when I try to figure that out. And I just have to leave that one and say, Lord, you know what? I trust that that's so. Your word portrays that. And I, and I leave it there. We're told in verse 24 that God loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that Jesus should be held by death. So why this verbiage? <laughs> why, why put it that way? And here's a hint from the original language, Koine Greek, which this was written in. The word pains here is the word for childbirth pain. I was surprised when I saw that too. I hadn't seen it before. It's the word for labor. And he says he's loosed the pains of death. So folks, you got to understand this goes all the way back to the garden. So the question then becomes, what did God tell Adam and Eve would be the result of eating the forbidden fruit? He said, on that day, you will surely die. The human race, since that moment, had been subjected to sin and as a result, death. Until Jesus, the God-man, the second Adam, uh, came along, having lived his life in perfect submission to the Father, we're told that he was tempted in all ways, even as we are, and yet without sin, so that death couldn't hold him because he had no sin. When we look at what it is to be justified in God's sight as Christians, the minute that I give my life to him, the moment of my conversion, the moment of my salvation, I am justified. And it goes beyond that, but a simple explanation is just as if I'd never sinned. We understand why death has lost its sting. Because death couldn't hold him, If you've trusted Christ, it won't hold you. That's how we have the blessed assurance that we do. Because if I belong to the king and death has loosed its grip on him, guess what? Death has lost its grip on me. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God, talking about wages, what's a wage? Something you earn. What's a gift? Something you don't earn. The gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Folks, it it always comes back to the cross. Always. Do you see why theological positions, which lead us to any other destination, whether they be prosperity or physical health or man-centered supernatural abilities, why these are completely false, heretical, abominable even? Do you see why signs and wonders as an end unto themselves and man-made religion have no power other than the power to deceive? And many have been deceived. I'm not saying that God never heals. He does. But what does it profit a man to be healed physically and face eternal judgment? I'm not saying that God never prospers someone. He does. But as the Bible itself declares, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? and to forfeit his soul. I'm not saying the signs and wonders and miracles don't happen. They do. But here's my point. These things don't happen in a vacuum. They happen primarily to validate the messenger 
Jesus Christ and the message, the gospel of our salvation. That's the purpose of these things. And that's Peter's whole point here, to get the people to connect the signs and miracles to the one whose signs they are, the one that they murdered. And he is very pointed about that, says it a couple of times here. God is truly, he had, he had truly loosed the pains of death in raising Jesus from the dead. Now, I came across an interesting quote going back to the labor pains and why that comes to play here. Uh, here's the quote. It says, the, the abyss could no more hold the redeemer than a pregnant woman can hold the child in her body. He had to resurrect. It was not optional. It wasn't something that God went, mm, well, let me think about it maybe. No, he had to resurrect. It had to happen. The prophecies predicting it had to be fulfilled. The will of the father had to be honored. He had to resurrect. And Peter is saying, look, this guy didn't stay dead. So guess what? Now you have to deal with him. Many times I've talked with people in my life, sharing the gospel with them. And and part of it has to do with the fact, look, Jesus didn't stay dead. He's not a religious mascot. He's a real person that lives this moment. And you have to deal with that. We all have to deal with that. I marvel that he is so loving in the way that he approaches us. So Peter now, in verse 25, he's going to reach back into the Old Testament again. And he's going to identify Psalm 16 first as messianic. Uh, Because he's going to demonstrate that the hope in the resurrection that we have has always been part of God's plan. Verse 25, he says, For David says concerning him, David, when he's talking about David, he's talking about the Psalms here, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. So Peter understood through the Spirit's anointing that although the psalm spoke of King David, it was written by King David, it spoke of someone greater than David. It spoke of the Messiah. He demonstrated here that it couldn't be David who's spoken of here. And uh, Peter needs for the crowd to see and understand that Jesus, again, he didn't stay dead. He's going to demonstrate that from the word of God to them here. Do you see the value? In, in always sourcing the word of God in the dialogue that we have with others. Otherwise, we're just given our opinion. And Peter's not given his opinion here. He's giving interpretation for the word of God by the spirit of God, and that's good. Verse 26, he says, Therefore my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. I love that. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Now, Peter had, I have to, I have to, I mean, we know that Jesus hung with these guys. They hung with him for three years, three and a half years. And then especially after he had resurrected from the dead, he breathed on them. He said, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he began to open his word to them. He gave them understanding that they hadn't previously had. I have to, I have to believe that, that as a result of Jesus' teaching, also by the Holy Spirit, who had just baptized Peter in power moments before, that he had come to understand the reality of the resurrection and, and that, that he had come to understand that God's word now had an expanded, he would have an expanded understanding of the prophetic word. Passages such as Psalm 16 would not in and of themselves 
have revealed Jesus' resurrection. But on this side of the cross, they were now incomplete without that understanding. You, You know, in a couple of places, in Romans and in Ephesians, Paul speaks of the mystery. And these things were previously mysterious to the Jews. There was little understanding on just how or who they were referring to. But we're told that, that the Apostle Paul especially loved it to tell people, look, we speak God's word. It's, it's in a mystery. It's not a mystery that's not knowable, but it's a mystery that was not previously known. This is a good example of that. That now God's word was coming to life in ways that it never could have without the knowledge and the understanding that Jesus had risen from the dead. When he speaks in verse 27 of Hades, now that's the equivalent of the Old Testament word Sheol. That's the abode of the dead. Now, I want to just caution, there are a number of weird teachings, false teachings out there about this, and I'm not going to go into them, (laughs) we don't have time, but suffice it to say that he didn't go to some prison house somewhere in the lower parts of the earth and preach the gospel. There's nothing to support that in God's word. The opportunity for people to give their lives to Christ, to turn from the old life, to embrace Jesus, the Messiah, the risen Lord... That comes while this life goes on. The Bible doesn't tell us of second chances after death. So all of that is what it doesn't say. Let's take a shot at at the most plausible explanation of what he's talking about here is what it does say. When he says, you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption, we know that Jesus' body was in the tomb. Three days. And his soul had gone to heaven. What did he say to the thief on the cross? Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Remember, uh, as he told the thief that, that he was indicating that his body was going to go one direction, his soul, his spirit was going to go another. What Peter's saying here, actually what Psalm 16 is saying, is God would not allow Jesus' soul to remain in a disembodied state. You will not allow my soul to stay separated from my body. Now, he wouldn't allow his body to disintegrate. That's the other half of this. To rot in the same way that we see Lazarus. Lazarus. Now, in the Gospel of John, remember it says that when they got to the tomb, (laughs) their comment was, he stinketh. (laughs) And so, it's saying, look, he will not decompose and he will not remain separated from his body. Essentially, he's saying that Psalm 16 tells us that the bodily resurrection of Jesus is a real thing. He will resurrect in his body. Verse 29, men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. At that point, they knew where that was. I went to a place in Israel that they claimed was David's tomb, but I kind of went, I'm not so sure about that. At any rate, God knows (laughs) sometimes those things are tourist destinations. God knows. But Peter here, having fresh insight into the word of God, again, by the spirit of God, he's pointing out to them that this psalm cannot be about David himself. He remains dead and buried. At the time that this was written, Peter says, look, he's still in the tomb. We know where his tomb is. This can't be about him. He elaborates in verse 3. He says, Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. 
He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Does that make sense to you now? This is confusing on the surface, and you think, okay, what does that all mean? What he's saying basically is that Jesus would resurrect bodily. He would, his soul and his body would come together in the resurrection. Now, I want to also notice, because therefore being a prophet, Peter says here, um, that, that David fulfilled the offices of both pr- prophet and king. Now we know that Jesus fulfilled all three offices and no one else ever has of prophet, priest, and king. But David was a prophet and he was a king. Now in 2 Samuel chapter 7, King David had wanted to build God a house. It was referring to his desire to build the temple in Jerusalem. God ended up saying, no, David, you can't do that. You have too much blood on your hands, but let me tell you what I'm going to do. God's response to him was that instead, he would build David a house. We call it the Davidic covenant, and it's an important section in scripture. In 2 Samuel 7, 12, and 13, we read, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's when God promised that through David's seed, the Messiah would come. And indeed, it would be through the house of David that an eternal throne and an eternal kingdom would be established. It would be through David's seed that Messiah would come and had now come. And that's Peter's point as he's addressing this crowd. Unlike David who remained in the tomb, Jesus had risen from the dead and was now seated on the throne of David. That's Peter's point here. Verse 32, this Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. Now Peter's reminding them here of the reality of the resurrection. Many in the crowd that day had been eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. Remember, this is Pentecost. It's only 50 days after the fact, after the resurrection. That's not very long, seven weeks. And the resurrection was an indisputable fact. It had been attested to by many people. We've talked about that already. We're not going to go back into that again. Verse 33, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. What's he talking about? He's talking about the Holy Spirit being poured out. You've seen the tongues of fire. You've heard the sound of the violent rushing wind. You've heard the men speaking, these Galilean guys that were uneducated men, and you've heard them speaking, and it's a perfect, in, in perfect um, a perfect dialect in your own home country dialect. It, it was a miraculous thing that these guys were experiencing. He's saying, look, this is the promise of the Holy Spirit. It's what you see and hear right now. Now to the Hebrew mind, I want to talk about the right hand of God for a minute. The right hand of God was a position of great authority and power. Okay. Um, I'll read something from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. I'm going to break into the Apostle Paul's prayer for the Ephesian saints. And he prays, The eyes of your understanding be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? What do you, what do you get in the deal? What's your inheritance? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power? 
which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above, now remember, it's a place of great authority and power. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but that which is in the age to come. He goes on to talk about how every knee will bow at the name of Jesus. Peter's essentially telling the crowd, and and I imagine they're hanging on every word as he goes. They had never heard somebody talk like this. You know, the religious leaders of their day would get up and just drone on. Peter's speaking with authority. He's speaking with the power of the Holy Spirit. And you've got to know that the Holy Spirit's working on that side, but he's also working in the hearts of the people as they hear. He is opening their hearts. He's convicting them of their sin. He's showing them the truth of the things that Peter has to say. Uh, Folks, I have often, I've been teaching the Bible for, gosh, going on 40 years now. And a constant, consistent prayer that I pray is, Lord, if you don't do it, it ain't getting done. And that's just the truth. That's not false humility. That's not, oh, gee. No, that is just knowing that when God equips somebody to speak forth his word, that person's desire ought to be and should be to disappear, that, that Christ would emerge in the midst of that, that the power of God would be manifest in that, that the people would hear him and follow him. Peter's telling them that Jesus didn't stay in the tomb. He rose from the dead. And when he rose, he rose in power. That same power, the power of the Holy Spirit, was being poured out upon them that very day. This is a day. This is a day that none of them would forget. Verse 34, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. We're talking about the right hand thing again. Peter further asserts here that Psalm 16 could not refer to David. David didn't resurrect when he died. He didn't ascend into heaven. Now I have to wonder also here, as Peter spoke these words, was he remembering the Lord's ascension that had happened just 10 days before, just a week and a half ago? He had watched Jesus levitate off the ground, disappear into the cloud. This is amazing. Now, he goes on here and he quotes from the third Old Testament passage in in his talk here, in his sermon to the people there in Jerusalem. He goes to what we refer to as Psalm 110, verse 1. Now, as we look at Psalm 110, I want you to understand this passage is often quoted or referred to. It is used at least 25 times in the New Testament, and that's more than any other Old Testament passage. So it's an important passage. But the wordplay that we'll get into here is beautiful. Um, When he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. The two words rendered in English as Lord are in fact very different words. Probably note that one is all caps and one is uh, upper and lower case. And that's because in your Bible, if you look and you see the word Lord in all caps, it's called the Hebrew Tetragrammaton. You don't have to remember that. What it is is four initials, okay? Y-H-W-H, Y-H-V-H, there's some debate about that. But it was because the Jews felt that that name was too sacred to say, so they just had these initials. There's no vowel markings in the Hebrew. And so we come up with, we extrapolate from that Yahweh, okay? And that is the word, the covenant name for God from Exodus chapter 3. When Moses said, 
God, who do I tell Pharaoh sent me? And God said, you tell him that I am that I am sent you. You And he uses that name, Yahweh. It's his covenant name. So the second word for Lord here in Psalm 10 is Adonai. All right. Now, Translated into Greek in the New Testament, that same word, its companion from Hebrew to Greek, is kurios. It's the title given to Jesus when we call Jesus the Lord Jesus Christ or the Lord Jesus. It's kurios. So I'm going to give you a contextual, I'm going to transliterate this a little bit. And this is where the beauty of it comes in because this is what is being said in this psalm hundreds and hundreds of years before the fulfillment of it would come about. So it, sounds, it would sound something like this. Yahweh has said to a descendant of David, whom God will set as a ruler over his people, sit at my right hand. Every reference in the New Testament to Jesus at the right hand of God has him sitting. And what God is, what, prophetically what he's saying here is Messiah would come and he would sit at the right hand of the Father. Again, we see two persons of the Trinity in play here. So there's one place where we see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And in Acts chapter 7, we see Stephen as he is being stoned to death, as he is dying. It says he gazes up into heaven and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the throne the right hand of God. Now we're going to discuss that in greater detail when we get there. Uh, But here we see Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. And that's significant. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10 gives us some insight into that, into why Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. Uh, In Hebrews 10 verse 11, uh, the writer there says, every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, referring to Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. And from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. In other words, when we see Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father, a great position of power and authority, he's also sitting because the work is finished. When he said to Telestai from the cross, It is finished. Guess what? It was finished. The work of redemption was done. The work, the the groundwork for your salvation, your redemption, my salvation was done. And he sat down. He says in verse 35, it echoes what we just saw in Hebrews, till I make your your enemies your footstool. Now, it's a bit of a cryptic sounding verse, but let's take a shot at what he's talking about here. First, we've got to realize when he's talking about this, this is not about my enemies, all right? <laughs> Your is capitalized there. That means it's a reference to deity. He says, I'll make your enemies your footstool. Now, since the promise of Psalm 110 is not for us, the question then becomes, how are we as believers to relate to our enemies? And we have some good instruction from God's word on that in Luke chapter 6. Verses 27 and 28, Jesus says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. In Romans 12, verse 19, Paul writes, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. 
For it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So there is clear instruction from God's word that if we took, try to make this apply to us, it, it's in direct contradiction because we're to love our enemies. We're to go low. That's the life that we've been called to. And the punishment of our enemies will come in God's time and in God's way. Anyone who holds up a lifestyle of sin ultimately is sinning against God. And the enemies of God ultimately will be placed under the feet of Jesus. He will take care of it. I don't have to. Verse 36, he says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly, I like that, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, by the way, both Lord, Kurios, and Christ, Messiah. I can't read this without thinking about the stunned silence of the people when Peter spoke this. It would be the first time that they truly understood, that they truly had a grasp of what Christ had done and what they had done. Peter doesn't mince words. (laughs) This is not a seeker-friendly message. It's not a feel-good message of health or prosperity in human terms. That's what it's not. And it would be tragic to end our time together this morning with that note. Here's what it is. This is a message of life, new life a life governed by the Spirit of God for any who would come, for any who would simply decide, you know, I've had it with the old life. I want the life that God promises here. This is also a message of hope, genuine hope for time, also for eternity. Folks, I sometimes try to imagine my life without Christ in it. And I think what a bleak existence what a hopeless existence. What, a, what an existence that's devoid of purpose, that's devoid of direction, that's devoid of the company the Spirit of God brings to my heart and to my life. This is also a message about purpose, about our purpose as children of the King. Next week, we're going to begin here in verse 36 where we've left off, or I'll start in verse 36 because the very next verse talks about the people's response. And we're going to look at that as well as God's faithfulness as the church now begins to flourish and grow. Remember, this chapter is about the birth of the church of Jesus Christ, the birth of the church of which you are part of if you belong to Christ now. This is a glorious chapter and there's a lot going on. When we look at this next section, we're going to look at why we pattern matters of faith and practice, why we pattern those things the way that we do because they're revealed here at the end of Acts chapter 2. So I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to this this third uh, uh, Jerusalem uh, part one last time a month ago, part two this morning, part three finishing up. Uh, next week as we wrap up chapter 2.